Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. This evening, I am ensconced at the clifftop home of our elite irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Bruce, thanks for uh, coming on the show, and thanks for hosting me. Hi! Hello, gamers! Uh, so, up front, I should apologize for our regular schedule uh, for Three Moves Ahead this last month. Uh, it's been a bit of a wild month for a lot of reasons, and we had a couple shows. Uh, well, okay, it's partly Bruce's fault. Bruce recorded half of a podcast where one of his guests was not on the actual recording he submitted. Stupid MP3 Skype uh, recorder. And then uh, we had one another show fall through at the last minute. Uh, so, two two shows ended up kind of being lost uh, for two weeks in July, so that's caused some causes some problems. And I don't know what order this po- these podcasts are going to come out. Uh, so you can hear this message on, on a couple different podcasts. Uh, but anyway, so as it's become a bit of a tradition when Bruce and I uh, visit, uh, we've played a lot of board games and we're sort of wrapping up our, our visit with some podcasting about what we've played. And uh, the first game we're going to discuss is a board game by GMT Games called Cataclysm, A Second World War, designed by William Turislavich and Scott Muldoon. And, uh, you know, Bruce, you sort of put this one in the hopper because it sounded like you had a very conflicted relationship with it. Uh, and also that it's a little bit the new hotness in strategic level uh, World War II board gaming. So why don't you set the stage a little bit? Uh, what is Cataclysm? And why were you having trouble coming to grips with it, having played it a few times? Okay, so um, Cataclysm is a game that fits what I would call the medium weight strategic genre it tries to do what i think is the holy grail for a lot of game designers which is that it is taking the strategic world war ii level and trying to compress it into a game that can be played in one session right i mean you have all the the worn the uh, world in flames totale krieg third reich uh and all those you know the genre of all those games that's the strategic game at the project level where you're going to have to basically leave it set up and have you know people come over every week and play it and that kind of thing and a lot of people want to play uh, a strategic conflict but they don't want to have to leave the game set up they would like the uh, idea that they'll play in the morning and be done by the afternoon or evening and that genre had recently a, an excellent addition to it called Triumph and Tragedy. And Rob, you and I played Triumph and Tragedy, and uh, we podcasted about it. So if you want to hear what Rob and I thought about Triumph and Tragedy, you can go listen to that podcast, uh, which we'll link here. But safe to say, like yeah. two years ago, it was sort of a surprise breakout hit yes. of uh, a visit I paid to you in your North Carolina home. We played with, um, you know, your friend Don. And I think we both came in with uh, fairly uh, measured expectations for that one and were sort of surprised at what a good, uh, you know, historically divergent uh, telling of World War II, II it was. Uh, and the, you know, short, you know, the back of the uh, napkin version of that game was that it was, uh, again, a second world war, not necessarily World War II, but it focused exclusively on the competition between uh, the liberal democracies and the fascists and the communists in Europe only. Mm-hmm. Triumph and Tragedy is Correct. the Western, the Western theater mm-hmm. uh, of that war. So we really like that, and a game has been released called Cataclysm, which we're talking about now, which takes this rubric and applies it to the global war. So the thing that really interested me about Cataclysm was that it includes the Pacific Theater. I think that if Cataclysm had not included the Pacific Theater, I would not have 
purchased it. I think I'm kind of done with World War II Europe at the strategic level. There, well, I say that and I'm not because I, I did buy Hitler's Reich. That's a whole other story. And that's even, that's that's taking the, the genre in a different direction entirely. Um, but I think that I'm sort of, not really that interested in playing strategic level World War II in Europe unless there's something really interesting going on. But I'm willing to go to the Pacific anytime because I don't think that theater has been covered very well. It's been covered a lot, but I think there are a lot of you know games that don't really achieve what they went for. And integrating that into the into the European war is very difficult, and I don't think that's been done really at all in a playable way. I mean, sure, play Totalic Regan Dicenso, but, or, you know, I don't think Third Reich and uh, Empire of the Rising Sun really work together. Um, it's it's a hard thing to do, okay, unless you want to do Quartermaster General, which is, that's not even in the same ballpark. You know, that's not really what I think war gamers are going to enjoy in the way that they enjoy these games. So that's a long lead in to say that when I got it, I played it with my friend Don that we played uh, Triumph and Tragedy with. And I'll say that Don is sort of my wargaming doppelganger, right? If Don really likes something, it's likely that I really like it too. And and we have the same, we just have the same reactions to games. I remember when we played, I showed him King, Kim Kanger's Dien Bien Phu, and he had exactly the same things to say about it that I did. And then we played Holland 44, and we both had the same feelings about it. You know, that the, the how we appreciate the game. I just feel like he and I are very much on that same wavelength. So we sat down with the uh, European scenario of Cataclysm on Vassal, and we played, and I really was very lukewarm on the game. I mean, I did not feel that it fit together well. Um, I felt that... The mechanics were a little clunky. There was a little too much of this and too much of that. And then, you know, like the combat. And there were, I just, I really was very not excited mm -hmm. after the first playing. Don, however, was really excited. And that's what made me think, you know what? You might be missing something here. If Don really likes it, it's got to be pushing some buttons that it could push for you. Maybe you're not paying attention. Maybe you're not seeing it. What can we do? So I then took the game and taught it to a friend of mine here, Jeremy. And Jeremy and I played a couple scenarios, a couple, the same scenario twice. We played the Pacific War scenario twice. And again, I, I played it and I thought, this isn't really working. I don't get it. I don't understand. And, and, Remember, this is, I follow the, you know, the board gaming sort of, you know, the buzz and I read forums and I follow Twitter and I know people like Ananda Gupta are posting about how great they think the game is. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, Don really likes it and he, he likes exactly what I like. And Ananda is a really smart guy and he's a great game designer and he obviously appreciates something that's going on here. Why am I not getting it? Um... I think the answer has to be gaslighting, right? Yeah. <laughs> like your friends are trying to drive right. you mad. Right. Well, that's probably true. I mean, they're doing that anyway. Um, so what I decided was that, you know, Rob, uh, there's going to be another podcast which may be posted before or after this one. So, uh, but we came to this uh, 
project with a clear agenda, one of which was to play some World War I games. And the other one, that, so you kind of put that on the agenda. I mean, I adjusted it. I said, you wanted to play Paths of Glory, and I said, okay, well, let's play a bunch of games so we can talk about yeah. them in, Which in, was a good in call. context. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, or at least I'm glad you think it was a good call. And uh, But then I asked that we put Cataclysm on the schedule. So I also asked my friend Evan to join us. He's down the street, and he committed his Saturday to playing Cataclysm with us. And Evan is great at, at keeping things sort of on a very rules-adherent keel. Uh, he uh, is a lawyer by training, and he really has an eye for trying to keep the rules uh, clear and when they're not, stopping and, and figuring out what the answer to the question is. Um so that's very helpful. Actually, Don does the same kind of thing, uh, not being a lawyer, but being a programmer. So I think that that kind of mindset really helps. So in any case, uh, we played the game. I was the fascists. Rob was the communists, which is really just the Soviet Union. And Evan was the Western democracies, which is France, Britain, and the U.S. Here's the key. Oh, I was the fascist playing Japan, Italy, and Germany. And the key here, thing here is that we played the full game, two-map scenario. And I figured out why the game was bouncing off me so hard. Because I'm not convinced that this game really shows its full potential unless you play all the powers on both maps and you start at the beginning. Because... The game has a very clear um, design thesis, and that design thesis is that diplomatic activity begets diplomatic activity, and that when you make power moves in someone else's sphere of influence, it will um, stimulate them to make power moves. And as more people make more power moves, the world will become more, uh, there will be more friction and countries will be empowered to do things that they couldn't, they, they'll be sort of uh, jolted out of their inertia, out of their torpor. And I didn't really get that. It, it, it doesn't really work if you start at war or you're close to war because the whole process of getting to war I think is what cataclysm is all about. And it's about making the world into, it's a sandbox game in a, in a, in a very significant sense where it's about making the world a, uh, a certain way before the, really the war breaks out. And the way the world is at that point dictates who's going to fight whom or how or why, or if they fight at all. So this is really a diplomatic study with the war part not to me not as interesting and that was what the problem was was that the some of the two player scenarios really are about the war part and the war part is not as interesting as the diplomatic part and i think you only see all the pieces fitting together when you play the game as it's sort of intended though with in the scenario book it's called the the full cataclysm experience so one of the uh, really novel things here, the game starts. Uh, I think, I think the full campaign goes up to almost like nine, almost up to nineteen fifty, right? But the three year turns. It well, starts in nineteen thirty three. It's, it's thirty three. They're two year turns, 
It goes to 46. That's the, I don't know what the, 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 the turn record track goes out further. Um, I have to look at the rest of the scenarios and see if there's something that goes yeah, further. Yeah, the scenario we play then in 45, 46. 45, 46, right. Yeah. So it goes 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 42, 43, 46. So it's a seven-turn game. Yeah. That's basically it. But seven turns may not sound like a lot, but where things get interesting, and this is, gen- this is generally only, I think, one of the most interesting parts of this game, is that... Um, so at the start of the turn, everyone is issue, everyone is issued some production points uh, with which they can build troops, uh, you know, in, or reserve. Uh, interesting thing in this game is that uh, production points, if you don't spend them as production, can also become military activity. Basically, they become offensive actions, uh, which you can use to either uh, peacefully redeploy your troops pretty much anywhere in your territory, um, or you can. Um, launch actual like attacks so I land operations but really the the heart of the game in the early stages uh is about the draw cup uh it's a, it's it's a it's it's a token draw driven yeah. uh game chip in pull. which that is yeah, the chip standard pull. standard yeah. word for it chip pull this is a chip pull game yeah and the thing is uh the way ac- action begets action in this game is that every time somebody every time you interact with something in somebody else's sphere of interest, not necessarily influence, but interest, uh, you are committing a provocation. And they get what is, you know, a, a flag uh, token. It's a diplomatic action. Yeah. Uh, a, a political political action political, yeah. Can, well, yeah, can be diplomacy. Right, in yeah. desperate times can also be repurposed for, like, Correct. military actions yes. in a more limited sense. But, yes, um, absolutely. So what they can then do... With this token now, now, now that now that now that shit is in the cup, and it could also be drawn. Um, and what the, what they might end up doing is, when their shit comes out, they will turn around and do something else in your sphere of influence, uh, and you will be provoked, and so you'll put another flag on the token. And so the first, I think, the first turn is almost deceptive because everyone is sort of, um, or at least a lot of players are kind of inwardly focused. Uh, the French player, for instance, has a really disastrous uh, political context. Uh, their their home front is teetering. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they've got some major problems with their, uh, you know, with, with their status quo. And so a lot of the, uh, you know, non-fascist powers end up playing a lot of inward-looking uh, moves in that early stage, probably maybe too inward-looking, mm-hmm. uh, the way I played yesterday. But, for instance, uh, you know, Germany can immediately start making power moves in, you know, Central Europe uh, and Eastern Europe. And what that can cause, uh, particularly like in the second or third turn, is Germany is starting to piss off everybody around it with these moves. And all these tokens are being added to the cup. The length of the turn is getting longer because more and more actions are being added to that cup. That's very important. And now everyone is able to do more each turn as the more aggressively Germany plays, the faster Germany is also causing France and England to begin mobilizing. It is causing Russia to begin having the wherewithal to intervene in Eastern Europe and to begin to um, you know really mobilize its resources. And so it's one of the more nifty dynamics. Uh, I thought it was the fir- it was the first thing about this game that really caught me was that this idea that players would drive each other up into these escalation spirals almost uh, because everyone now was doing provocative actions uh, on their moves and the turn would just get longer and longer. Uh, and, you know, 
in a given turn, you'd have the the world move considerably closer to full scale war and mm-hmm. a lot of like alignment happening uh, on the map, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I I really did appreciate that. I think it was on the first turn because in the first turn, you know, you don't really the United States doesn't get a flag, the British and French can get a flag, but they they have to make a what's called a stability test to do it. And that's another there are a whole bunch of mechanics that we'll kind of have to explain, but the point is that there were reasons that you wouldn't want to get any flags. So you're you're starting with only basically the Germans and the Italians uh, and the Japanese uh, with the ability to do uh, political actions. But then as they start doing those things, now, you know, the uh, the Germans are doing things that are adjacent to French interests because France is in, interested in, uh, France has influence in Poland, France has influence in Czechoslovakia, France has, France has interest in Romania. And so any Central European countries that are adjacent to those, if, if Germany takes actions against them, uh, those will be um, those will generate flags for the French. And then if they are able to ally with the British, that'll generate flags for the British as well. So this alliance sort of will start responding. And we we basically, there, there are four crisis markers, which are these, um, they're basically random events, and they'll yeah. happen. You have, and they're the, t- the game clock. So there are four markers. You'll resolve three of them. After the third one, you go into what's called sudden death. That means when you pull the fourth marker, if there are few enough chits in the cup, the turn will end. So you may not resolve all of a country's chits. It'll go sort of carry over to the next turn. Um, so we drew the first three, I think out of the first five draws, we drew three crisis uh, chits. And I thought, gosh, this this game is going to be over, you know, before lunch. And then I think they drew another German flag and Germany did something that pissed off France and then France got a flag and then they did something and that pissed off Italy and then Italy got a flag and then all of a sudden as you th- there was this whole back and forth that sort of snowballed and then the turn got extended much further because there were more and more uh chip pulls from the cup that were drawing uh political actions and then later on in the um in the game it was it was just uh you know every you 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 get your flag which gives you the political action you resolve it and then you put it back on your on your display but then two other powers might provoke you so you put one in and then you put another in so now before you uh, take your next turn you actually have more flags in the cup than you had before and there are also other things that you know your your everything goes in the cup you if you build units they go in the cup if you have offenses you go in the cup so you're just doing a chip pull to take various actions sometimes you'll just draw an army you say okay i'm putting this army down i'm positioning it's called deployment um sometimes you will get a political action sometimes you get a military action various things you can do well and that's that's the other uh nifty thing i'm doing that thing where i'm like playing like I'm, as i talk about the game there's more i'm liking about it we'll get to my reservations later uh but another cool thing happening here is, is you know as i'm sure you surmised is that you have a rough idea of what's gone into the cup you see everyone right. you know put you know oh there's there's a uh, d- there's an upgrade that will turn an infantry army into a tank army and which right. will give a combat bonus right. uh you get a sense of what's gone into the cup mm-hmm. uh unless you have a really great card counting ability right. or like a photographic memory you probably are not going to remember exactly what is in the cup correct uh but you have this so there's this uncertainty of like you have a rough idea of what of what is possible mm-hmm. uh, to be pulled from that cup. But you have no idea what the order is going to be. Right. 
And especially, so, like, you might desperately need reinforcements, and you keep pulling political actions, right. and you just don't, like, you can't put your troops on the board. You pay right. for them, right. but you can't directly control when they're going to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but likewise, that also means you have this variability in timing, which you can try to control uh, with, in, with the reserve mechanic. Yes. Uh, which is that... It's very important. Before you put your uh, tokens in the cup, you can ta- set one of them aside and say, I'm reserving this. And you can play your reserved action before uh, a token is pulled from the, cu- from the cup. Right. So, for instance, uh, if, if Bruce wants to launch a devastating surprise attack on Russia, for instance, which he toyed around with mm-hmm. uh, in, in our game... He can't leave that to chance. He can't just sit there and be like, well, Barbarossa will happen, I guess, whenever we feel like it. Uh, that, that, that's not going to work. So what Bruce is going to do, and did, uh, is he's going to set aside an offensive action uh, before, before the turn begins. And then right. the turn begins unfolding. Right. Now, as the Russian player, I have to know that at any time, Bruce can make his armies move and begin an attack. But that's now in his, in his control. However, what Bruce can't control, because he made that choice is maybe he needs another infantry unit out there. Maybe he needs aircraft or air superiority. And he really doesn't want to do Barbarossa without that shit. But Russia also has a lot of troops in that cup that it's going to be deploying for a defensive position. So Bruce has got to make the calculation there. Is it better to go now when I'm in control of the pace and I have a little advantage? Or do I want to wait for those those last few things that will really make that steamroller go? Uh, but at the risk of getting unlucky and watching the Russians basically fully prepare for that attack, uh, and so that's kind of the dynamic uh, of, of a lot of, of of what this what this chit draw uh, right. is doing for the game. Yeah, and that <clears throat> because of the scale, you know, the two year turns, it's it really does feel like there's a lot of development in the situation between the turns. So it's not like the turn is so granular that you can do something in one turn and then prepare for the next turn. But you, the, the, the situation is fluid because, you know, you may have 30 chip pulls in a, in a turn, just given how many flags are going to get added and all the, you know, once the United States really starts producing things, it's going to produce troops and offensives. And, you know, the U- United States may have 10 things, 10, 12 things in the cup on its own, so you're going to have, you know, you may have 30 uh, chip pulls in the in the cup. Maybe I don't know. I'm, I'm just, this is a, I think we estimate. might have gotten north of 30. Because, yeah. like, the early turns, you get, like, a dozen mm-hmm. chip pulls, really, like, mm-hmm. that are in that cup, in addition yeah. to the uh, four crisis tokens. Right. Which you'll move through pretty quickly. That's, that's not much. In those later turns, the provocation cycle and just the fact that people are producing more and there's more stuff for them for them to do, uh, and the fact it self-perpetuates means that, yeah, I think by those late game turns, we were probably busting through like thirty actions a turn. Yeah, thirty or forty. So, so that I mean that's very interesting. Um, it really is. At, at, I think it at its best, it's a great design thesis that uses variable activation in a in a an extremely clever and effective way. I think that that's that's at the at its best. That's what the game does well. There's some other things about it that I'm not as excited about, um, but I want to I want to talk about just a little bit about what um, 
how our game went. So our game was a very peaceful game. We actually never got to the point where anybody declared war on any major power. And one of the main reasons for this was that very early in the game, so France has uh, France has interests in Romania, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. And one of the you know um, consequences of this is that German activity in Central Europe is a provocation against France because you know they if they try to do diplomacy against Hungary or diplomacy against um, Austria or actually Austria I think is, is Italian at the beginning of the, but but the point is that you do stuff if you do stuff directly against Romania that's going to uh, piss off the French um, but we had a Balkan pact come up as a as a a, um, a, a random event. Uh, through the crisis, through the uh, crisis token. table. So every yeah. time, every time a crisis token is drawn, that's not just a timer on the overall length of the turn. Each time a crisis token is drawn, you roll two dice. That selects from a menu of possible world events that happen in the game. Peace. There's a different one for peacetime, a different one for wartime. And so in this case, what popped was the Balkan Pact. Yeah, and the Balkan Pact basically forced France to uh, basically make an effectiveness check, and we'll talk about effectiveness um, against all of its ungarrisoned. Uh, countries in Central Europe where it had uh, it had control, and I think that there were actually two Balkan pacts uh, that came up in, in short order. Like one happened, and then another something else, and then another happened right away. And France ended up losing all of its cubes, which are the control in Central Europe, which meant that now not only can Germany take those countries over, but France has no direct interest in Central Europe anymore. And that hamstrung the French to a huge degree because they really had no flags to take diplomatic act or pol- political actions with. Um, the Russians, you know, doing things in Romania and Poland does uh, and Bulgaria, those pro- provoke the Russians, but the Russians don't have, for other reasons, don't have the ability to respond to that very well, uh, especially in certain uh, postures the Russians have. Uh, they can't take diplomatic actions at all, or sorry, can't take can't do a diplomacy at all. They can take political actions, but they can't do diplomacy. So there are ways in which, if the game goes a certain way, the the whole game is predicated really on this flag mechanic, where you draw the flags, you do you make political, um, you take political actions, and that begets more political actions, and you have this kind of back and forth, real interaction of play. But if you don't get those flags, then you really can be sort of handcuffed. And furthermore, to to simulate the pre-war sort of, uh, you know, lethargy of the uh, Western democracies, there's something called status quo, which until the Germans mobilize or until the fascists mobilize, the... um, the Western democracies need to do something called a stability check, which uh, can cause their governments to collapse if they want to get a do political action. So the, the populace doesn't really want them mixing it up with the Germans. So you can go for a long time without the ability to do much. And those flags, if you don't keep getting provoked, you're going to get one political action a turn. And so what the Germans did was they simply rampaged through Scandinavia and... Uh, 
the in Central Europe got a whole bunch of victory points there because what you do, you get victory points for controlling countries. And the Japanese did a similar strategy in the Pacific where there's a Washington Naval Treaty uh, me- mechanism, you know, the, the, the 553 uh, Japan, uh, uh, you, you U.S. You should explain the background. So, so the, the Washington Naval Treaty was a treaty that was signed between the, the um, well, a whole bunch of people, the, the Americans, the British, the Japanese, the Italians, the French. And um, what it basically did was it fixed Japanese naval strength at 60% of the United States. And uh, as a result, sort of kept the United States from developing its... its uh, its full industrial power until the Japanese, Japanese militarism, they felt that this was a terrible treaty and they, uh, they abrogated it. And so then everybody started building their own, own ships. Now, objectively, you know, it's, it's sort of my thesis. And I, I mean, it's not, sorry, it's not my thesis. I mean, a lot of people have said this. I mean, HP Wilmot uh, made it, made a very clear case that the Japanese, uh, the best thing that ever happened to the Japanese was the Washington Naval Treaty because it basically took a country, the United States, which had a huge advantage in industrial power and just completely hamstrung it to the point where it couldn't use it. And the Japanese freeing the United States from their production constraints is really what caused them to lose the war because there was no way they were going to keep up with the United States building uh, aircraft carriers and, and, and capital ships. But historically, the Washington Naval Treaty was seen as a huge humiliation for the uh, for the Japanese, because they were basically put on the put on the level of the French and Italians uh, as a second tier naval power, and they felt that that was a huge affront. So, the militaristic Japanese government that one of the main things they could never have accepted staying in the treaty for much longer. What I did was I basically said this is the greatest treaty ever because what it keeps the Americans from doing is deploying anywhere really except. Uh, into mainly you can't deploy into the Pacific and you can't deploy into the Philippines. So all the Japanese did was they went into China and started picking off provinces in China, which each individual province ends up being a victory point. The U.S. was reduced to trying to uh, send aid to the um, Chinese uh, nationalists in the Civil War. The Russians were helping the communists, but Neither of those powers is directly involved, and the Japanese just keep, you know, gobbling up, uh, gobbling up victory points. So that's basically how the game went. The, there was nobody that could effectively mobilize. And there's also something. This is very interesting. It's called effectiveness. So your ability to use those flags that you have, your ability to use them, is governed by your effectiveness. So the Germans are very effective, and the French and Italians are ineffective. What that means is that the way you resolve actions is that you need, you know, it's a standard, you know, roll some dice every five. If you get a five or a six, you get a success. Well, the German's effectiveness of three means you're rolling uh, three dice, whereas the French effectiveness of a one means you're rolling one die. And uh, Japanese are two, uh, British are Communists two. Communists are two. Communists are two. And it'll change as you, as you mobilize, as the United States mobilizes, it'll go from two to three. Um, but here's the key. If you look at the, and I calculated this, the likelihood for rolling a five or a six on one die is obviously a third. Rolling a single five or a six or two, whatever, getting two, getting a success at least on two dice is about 50% chance. Getting a success on three dice is a 
about a two-thirds chance. So you're basically a third, half, two-thirds. So the Germans are going to get successes twice as often as the French are. And when you are uh, the French, you are getting few flags and you're not being very successful at doing things with those flags. And uh, each turn, your home front, you have there's a home front shit, and your government gets checked every turn to see whether the people are, you know, displeased with the with the progress and whether they, the, gov- the government could collapse, which leads to a whole bunch of other things. But when you don't have enough diplomatic actions, you're going to spend those diplomatic actions to try to shore up the home front. And so you're not going to be as evolved in world affairs. And so the game proceeds in this very, um, shall I say sort of, and it's not demilitarized because people are building militaries. They just can't really use them very well. Um, except for the Germans who are sort of rampaging through all the minor countries that they have access to. So, and the Japanese are rampaging through China. And I think the, the, the Russians are really hamstrung. I mean, they need to pick, the Russians are going to get their victory points from rolling through Germany. Yeah. Um, but that really never came up. So, the way in which those flags are distributed really drives the way the game is going to go. Yeah, and I think it was like having the Balkan Pact event fire twice basically deprived France of the thing it desperately needs in the early game, which is France is probably going to struggle to maintain influence uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, however, as they lose that influence, what ideally is going to happen is they're going to be getting flags uh, from the actions that Germany and possibly Russia are taking to drive them out. Uh, and so even though France might end up getting driven out of there, at least France should be on a slightly better footing uh, by the time the process has ended. Because uh, France sort of lost the uh, before because France sort of lost Eastern Europe without a political shot being fired, uh, France didn't get as close to mobilization a- as it ideally did. Uh, the Soviets had a similar problem um, because, again, provocation is kind of an adjacency thing. Like you need to, like basically, you need to sort of stick your nose into a region's business so that anything happening in that region will give you a flag. That's kind of where you want to be. So. Uh, the issue with like Japan focusing entirely on China, for instance, is that very early on, I lost my influence uh, in China. And even though there are Chinese communists fighting in the civil war in that country, that's a different thing. It doesn't, it's not considered a Soviet interest uh, for the purposes of this game. And so Japan was slowly uh, working its way through China. Like there's a lot of uh, Kuomintang troops and a lot of Chinese communists that the um, Japanese army has to actually fight, and it's bad terrain. It's a slow process, but it is kind of an inevitable one uh, because Japan has resources and keep, can keep throwing uh, fuel into that fire. Uh, so they're going to, they're going to make progress into that. But as that was happening, once I'd sort of been you know, sort of hived off from, honeycombed off from, from what's happening in China. For all intents and purposes, it's invisible to Russia. Like, Russia can't see it, uh, so, it's, so it's not really happening. And so Japan is building this really, like, big Asian empire and getting a lot of victory points, and I'm not getting any flags off of that. And the other 
the other catch, and this is where it gets really devilish for the for the Soviets to the point where like it kind of irritated me mm-hmm. a little bit. One of the theses of this game is that the Soviets under Stalin are an inherently dysfunctional uh, polity. Mm-hmm. And that is reflected by a couple things. The Soviets have a posture. And so the Soviets at any given time can be doing, uh, they can be in a posture of military reforms, in which case they are taking uh, a minus one penalty to all political actions. So basically all that shit you do with a flag, including trying to get a country on side, um, now you're at a minus one. So your odds of actually hitting that roll have just gotten really bad. Now you're now you're like a, uh, again, you're probably, you're probably at a, one third, uh, at best. Well, you're. Uh, you yeah, gotta hit yeah. a six on two dice. One one six on two dice. Yeah. Right. So the chances of you not doing either one is five six, uh, times five six, right? Yeah. So it's twenty five thirty sixths. Yeah. So you only have uh, yeah eleven thirty six left. So it's less than a third. Yeah. Um. So it's. So your odds of actually being able to maintain political presence in the world are pretty bad as as the communists. You can switch to um, you can switch to a purges uh, stance, which gives you a minus one uh, to all diplomatic actions, uh, but you can do other political checks uh, just fine. But then your troops will also fight at a minus one, which again is is a pretty bad bad hit or you can switch into collective security in which you have a minus one to all political actions except diplomacy and you can do stuff but even switching stances requires passing a political check and so at the start of the game uh just to switch like even if you want to get in a stance that allows you to be more activist in whatever your chosen strategy is just the action requires you burning one flag or maybe two just to get in the place where you can do that and again, if you're not getting flags of the Soviets, now all those odds begin to seem super long. And so the only, the only point where I really started getting some, uh, some, some, some flags, some mobilization going as the Soviets um, was really when the Germans were right on the doorstep uh, as they began to roll into uh, the Eastern European neutrals. Uh, but until that happened, it was very slow going. Um, and just, just as a quick note about just playability here, playing it three-sided. Mm-hmm. The thing you have to realize about this game is that effectively, like we were playing it three-sided aligned along like the, the, the overall factions, the ideologies. But you could play this game with every single player being a different country. Yeah, you could play, you could play a seven-player game. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that the Italian player would necessarily have a very, I mean, they have a lot less to do. Um, I think that if war breaks out, I'm wondering if the, if the ideal game here would be actually uh, a five player with, uh, France and Britain, Germany, Italy, and then Russia, Japan, US. Now the countries win and lose based on the total victory points for their faction. So, you know, the French, British player would win or lose with the American player and the German Italian player would win lose or lose with the Japanese player. Um, yeah, there was a definitely a pacing issue. Like I was, I played the fascist. So I, I had something to do all the time. You know, there were flags coming out for 
France, or sorry, <laughs> France, for Italy, Germany, and Japan. Uh, Evan had flags coming out for France, Britain, and the U.S., and Rob, I mean, when I say flags, I mean uh, chits. I mean, they were obviously yeah. built things, built so the, the offensives. But the the democracies and the fascists had much more to do during the game than the communists. So Rob was sitting around and, and sort of staring at the map a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that... Um, we played it in the in the optimal way, and I want to. So the, the other thing. So I want to say that you know all of the the way that these things shake out. You know, well this happened, so this happened. These guys are hamstrung by this. That's not necessarily for me a criticism of the game. So I think that the game has a very clear thesis, and the game's thesis is well. Um, it's well illustrated by the mechanics. And the fact that sort of things are going to go a little randomly and you're going to have to respond to that randomness, I think is fine. It's, 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 the game accepts it and I can accept it. I think it's, it, it works because your whole, the whole goal is to sort of sandbox and see what political situation develops that leads to the military conflict. So I'm fine with that just because the, the, French lost their influence in in uh, in Central Europe. Fine, they have to do they have to do other things. You, you, the play is going to have to change. You're going to have to adapt. The part of the game that I don't think I enjoyed as much, well, I don't think I didn't enjoy as much, was the military part. And the reason for that is that I think that the designers made a clear decision that they need to keep the level of granularity sort of consistent, which I think is a, is a very admirable decision. What you're going to do is you're going to, you have political actions, you have military actions. So if you're going to go political military, then having the military then turn into a giant, uh, you know, pyramid of tanks and infantry and Panzer threes and anti-tank guns and close ground support and strategic bombers and different kinds of strategic bombers and V2 rockets and everybody has a modifier for tech and yeah, that kind of thing. I don't think that's going to work. And, and to the designers, great credit, they didn't try to make it work. I think they recognized what was going to fit sort of from a design, from a scale standpoint. The problem I have is that the combat that ensues from the system does not really correspond to my visualization or my sort of conceptualization of World War II combat. You have basically infantry and armor and air and strategic air. And there's a naval com component too, but let's just talk about the European land war part. You roll some dice. The dice are competitive rolls. Depending on, you know, you, you roll two dice and you take the highest number and then you have uh, the difference between the dice is a uh, is a multiplier for losses or the sorry the multiple it's a <clears throat> yeah it's a multiple of you very often will uh, not really have any losses you just have retreats um, but a very bad die roll can completely we didn't have any because we'd had minimal combat we didn't have a lot of you know terrible defeats but you can you can lose uh, quite a few units if you just get a bad die roll and. The way the, the homogeneity of that depiction really doesn't seem to fit for me 
into the context of a World War II game. Um, and this is where I can bring Triumph and Tragedy into it because I feel that what Triumph and Tragedy does well is Triumph and Tragedy, through its tech tree, sort of allows for the differentiation of these units. You know, you have heavy tanks, you have, you know, the, you have the, the atomic bomb race, um, you have the dichotomy. There you have the dichotomy sort of between production and, and, and diplomacy, uh, which here is completely separate, right? You, there's no... You cannot buy flags. You can't buy diplomatic actions. The whole premise of this game is that diplomatic action is enabled by other people making you um, respond to them through their provocations. Now, the Germans have uh, get two flags at the beginning of each turn until the government collapses. That sort of uh, um, represents the, the dynamism of Germany. You know, Germany is driving the political situation, so they'll have more flags than everybody else. But... The, the political and the military are completely separate. Your, your military is your production. Your political is your, your flags. In Triumph and Tragedy, those are two different things. Your hand size is limited, um, and you have to decide, am I going to use these things for political, for political uh, actions or for military moves, or am I going to save up these production cards? Right? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge dichotomy between the two games and the... the Twilight, um, uh, sorry, Twilight. Triumph and Tragedy takes the concept of um, political and military, integrates it, and uh, Cataclysm takes those two and separates them. So that's a clear, a clear design thesis difference between the two games. But I felt when I was playing Triumph and Tragedy that I I had a more, it was more evocative to me of World War II than the combat system in um, Cataclysm, which really felt very vanilla and kind of just, it was just, you know, the units, it was almost a, you know, it was just a generic, here, here I have this entry. I understand why the designers did it. I just feel that the result detracts from the game for me. So I'm incredibly dependent on theme. Uh, just not not just in terms of like I need a game to have lots of like nice chrome and mm -hmm. to like really look like I'm I'm playing with the stuff of, mm -hmm. of the theme, mm -hmm. but like literally I really depend on theme a lot to help illuminate how I'm both supposed to interpret the rules. Like I need it helps me a great deal if the rules if I can sort of identify the way in which the rules are sort of interacting with the theme and sort of driving mm -hmm. uh, the story the game is trying yep. to tell. Yep. That is enormously helpful for me as a, as a signposting sure. issue. It is also hugely important for me to know what I'm supposed to be doing as a player, right? Like, to have just a rough sense of, like, okay, so the character in the story of this game, what would they do uh, at this point? That's kind of... I, I need that stuff. A consistent problem for me in Cataclysm was that, and it was most pronounced once military stuff started happening, is nothing really felt like anything to me. Like, there are so many dice rolls in this game, all of which operate according to slightly different rules. So that, that's another slight frustration is like, it feels as if every action you take requires consultation of two different subsections in the rolls just to make sure you're you're doing this roll right. Mm -hmm. It's it's the same it's the same dice. It's always a two or three dice roll. Uh, but each one is just a little bit different and proceeds according to different logic. But then you couple that with the way all the militaries are made very interchangeable 
uh, completely interchangeable. And the way in which their numbers are really stripped down, like this is a very sparse map in terms of military units. And so the feeling I started to get once military action started happening, people were starting to, uh, you know, invade defended neutrals and such, is that it all just kind of feels like a giant crapshoot. Uh, that military... And it's it's a it's a strange thing. It's hard for me to it's hard for me to qualify, even as I talk about it. But like, to me, it it really did feel like when when I was staring across the heavily defended border between uh, Russia and Germany uh, in that late game, I felt hugely discouraged from taking action, in part because I knew the way the odds were going to break down. Like with we both sort of had time to prepare pretty first rate armies to go up against each other. It was going to be kind of a coin flip uh, all up and down that border. And yes, like probably what's going to have to make the difference is going to be like the context of there's another great power out there. Like Evan would have started hitting you from Western Europe and then you've got a whole lot of problems. And I can I keep sustaining this offensive? Absolutely. But in terms of that moment where it's like time to commit your forces and begin the attack, it doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel particularly like World War II. It, it feels like abstract to the point where the theme almost disappears. Um, and it feels really kind of impossible to feel like you are, like you can do much to well situate yourself for successful military action. You like you, you might have successes, mm -hmm. but all things being equal, each side basically has even odds to win these fights. Right. And, that's not necessarily such a huge problem, except for so much of this game, there is space to make these lateral moves where you don't have to make that coin flip against another player, mm -hmm. and you instead just spend your resources and go somewhere else where you're not going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, a, for me, it felt like a bit of a problem that the game is always giving you the, well, you can take the leap in the dark, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or... You can just go somewhere else and like try to pick up a cheap victory point, right. and it's not going to affect anybody else. But like, it's your victory point, right. and nothing can go wrong. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 issue there is that some countries have the sort of um, victory point sink, and other countries don't. Right. So you didn't really have a lot of places to go for victory points, whereas the Germans had a ton of places. So at yeah. some point, you're going to be driven to, you know, yeah. you're like, well, I, I'm not going to win this game if I don't get victory points. So that forces you into you know into the attack but i understand what you're saying about the militaries and furthermore you know because of the way the combat system works i mean i had several uh cases where i lost you know i was trying to invade hungary and i lost uh you know i lost my my um a panzer army yeah panzer yeah. army a couple times in a row right and that's an upgrade that's a whole and it just doesn't that kind of thing, I know you can sort of justify it in, you know, you can always build some kind of, well, this only, this represents, you know, a, uh, you know, a last minute, uh, you know, uh, military or sorry, last minute political uh, uh, intervention from so-and-so, and then they caused them to disband, you know, I mean, you can, you can, you can, you can sort of hand wave things away, but the ultimate effect is that it causes you to look at that combat and look at the other combat and see them in this light of being very um, dice 
ridden and think I'm not. And I, once again, I'm not arguing against uh, randomness. I'm arguing about that. If you impl- implement this randomness and it makes what should be two different combats feel exactly the same, then it detracts from your depiction of World War II. And that that really was the problem for me, is that I felt like uh, once you got to the military level, I, and, I, and I also understand how this game is supposed to work, that, you know, you, you're supposed to time your moves, right, in such a way that you get to the you expand every time you 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 have this thing called commitment level so you go from civilian to rearmament to mobilization to total war but then you can get to exhaustion and as you go up to total war you get more and more and more units in your force pool so you can build more and more units then you get to exhaustion it comes back down some um but then as you do that you get penalties to your role in the um in the home front. home front role, which is your your government stability, which can draw you can have a government collapse. So basically, the people get sick of this all this war commitment. They you're giving them uh, guns, they want butter. It's even on the little counters. But the um, the fact is that in order to do uh, in order to keep your government from getting too unstable, you have to do propaganda. I mean, this all makes thematic sense, right? So you have to do prop, make propaganda rules. Those propaganda rules are a political action, which will be brought on via uh, flags, which you get from provocations. But once you're at war, enemies can't provoke you, really, because they're, you're already fighting them. So it doesn't matter. So you're going to stop getting flags from these provocations. And so you're going to have very—you're only going to get the flags that you get at the beginning, maybe for some other things that happen Uh randomly but um but in general you're going to have a very hard time keeping your uh your government stable so eventually the way the game is supposed to work you are governments are going to become going to collapse the people are going to get exhausted and it's the timing of your move from one step to the other that gives you that advantage over other militaries right so somebody's going to get to a bigger force pool with more units and uh, they're just they're going to be able to over that that's the, that's the 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 differential is your that getting to the 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 fascists have an advantage of getting to uh this mobilization and total war faster than the democracies and that's that's what the the force differential is going to be but that mean you may not get there and if it doesn't get there and and of course this is a sandbox so you should be this this should be open to a wide variety of outcomes if you don't get to a certain historical place then the you know the counterfactual scenario starts feeling very the combat starts feeling very bland and you've already got the situation where the the combat against neutrals is very you know it's all it's very it's very dicey that's actually one of the one of the issues i had when i played it the the when i played the european scenario was that once the war started you lost all of that, that diplomatic stuff, and uh, and you were just playing this very limited um, military game in a small space, which I didn't think really worked very well at all. That and that's I'm I'm seeing now more why I bounced off the smaller scenarios. I feel like the large scenario is uh, is the way you should play the game, and it may be the only way to play the game. Yeah. Now I've played it once. I am fully. Uh, cognizant of the fact that 
that means I don't really know anything about how the game is going to play. The, 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 the difference between the first and the second play of any game is the biggest difference of, of you know, any session. You're going to, yeah. you learn the rules, you figure out how things work, and then the second time you're through, you're like, okay, this is what I should have done here, this is what I should have done here, and you sort of optimize your, you, there's much more optimization that happens between the first yeah. and the second than, than between any other two uh, sessions. So I would be interested to play it again, play a different strategy, see, you know, what the counter to the, the, um, the, uh, the non-belligerent strategy is, I mean, I'm, I know there they've got counters that the Soviets would just build up and, and attack when the Germans have not attacked and they would get those victory points. Um, but that still doesn't solve for me the problem that I don't like, that combat's not evocative for me. So we're, we're playing two games. We're playing this very interesting back and forth diplomatic game, which is one of the reasons that I didn't attack because I really thought that game was interesting and, and there were a lot of flags and getting this back provocations. Once the countries turn into into belligerents i feel like it's a much less interesting game yeah i um i certainly was more interested in continuing to see if as i like by the end i felt like the most viable strategy for me to pursue as the soviets was to continue pressing out into turkey uh and across scandinavia and then i'd be sort of i'd have eyes on everything and i'd probably get a lot of political actions as provocations happen in my sphere of interest um, but once it turned into a slugging match between like Britain, uh, sorry, Germany and like the USSR, that was just going to be us throwing these tiny little stacks of troops at each other, trying to get a couple modifiers in our favor, rolling dice, probably being disappointed about half the time and sort of resetting and waiting, going through that process of waiting for your army to charge back up via the chit draw system and production. And yeah, just waiting for a chance to uh, sort of renew the offensive that would continue to grind forward. It just didn't appeal very much to me. Like it was, and I don't need, I don't need every game to be War of the Ring. Mm -hmm. um, but in sense that it's extremely thematically uh, coherent. Yeah. And like, and it feels like the thing it says it right. says it is right? right. Like when it was is this really at this moment at the when we sort of broke for dinner, mm -hmm. I turn around and uh, Bruce has the stack of the large format cards from the collector's edition of War of the Ring that he has. It was gorgeous, like uh, you know Minnie's uh, collection of, of War of the Ring. But there's this portrait of Saruman uh, on the back, and it's this great picture of him, and his eyes just full of like you know, wisdom and contempt and, and rage. And it's like, you look at that card, and you, you look at that game, and everything feels like the thing. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens in that game interacts with your knowledge of the material mm -hmm. and what's supposed to happen and how roughly this should proceed. And it roughly supports that sort of, uh, those expectations that you, you bring into it. With Cataclysm, I feel like the greatest thing I could do to understand the game and what is going to happen is to have an odds chart mm -hmm. of what my dice roll mm -hmm. outcomes are, are going to be. Right. And just play it like a play it like an actuary uh, <laughs> and, and let that govern my actions. Because I did I certainly did not feel like um I felt like in war anything could happen. Probably it would average out to be very little happening until somebody's just sort of gang tackled mm -hmm. uh, to the ground. And so the best thing you could do is just keep trying to position yourself so that you keep getting provocation chats and wait until the game opens up a bit. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, what, what's, what we're seeing is that 
once you take things into a counterfactual uh, area, you are no longer able to, in many ways, sort of, you, you can't call, you can't evoke a thing that never happened, right? And one of the things that, that really struck me was that, for example, the, the Spanish Civil War didn't happen in our game because it's a random event that civil war and you just roll a die and it's going a country is going to go into civil war if you get that event but we never got the civil war event a and b if it had happened it probably would have would not have been spain because that's just one of the one of the results yeah. so you know you have on one hand you have you're starting at europe in 1933 for you know where the seeds of the spanish civil war are already sort of set but the thesis is that, well, maybe a civil war wouldn't have broken up in, out in Spain. Maybe it would have broken out in, you know, Yugoslavia, which is fine. But there's no evocative sense of the Yugoslav civil war because it never happened. And you're sort of creating it out of your out of a, out of nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, out of no historical time. And you know what his Yugoslavia is. You understand sort of ethnic tensions in Yugoslavia. But when you when you talk about. The game is a second world war, right? Well, that a second world war is now almost like, you know, it's sort of like Scythe, where you have, you know, this post-World War One thing that happened in a completely different way. So, yeah, there's World War One in it, but they're mechs, right? So here you have World War Two, but there's all this other a historical. I mean, obviously, they're not exactly the same. It's one is a sort of science fiction. One is just a. One is just counterfactuals. But the counterfactuals, once you go too far out into counterfactuals, things are not as evocative. So, And that's just for me from a historical perspective because I really, really enjoy history and I really enjoy sort of thinking out the um, sort of the threads of history. But once you start pulling that thread too far, I don't know, maybe I just become less interested. Yeah, I think for me it just it started to feel... Um... Yeah, the threads the threads get pulled out pretty far. I, I think the other aspect is the farther you put those, the more your plausibility, your cre your your credulity begins right, to get right, stretched. Right. Like what this world is like, the thing that makes this game work mm -hmm. is that it basically exists in a world where like security guarantees are impossible. Like right. they, like nobody can provide them. Right. All you can do is just have influence over a country that's going to get gobbled up, unless you garrison it. Right. Yeah. At which point you're going to get pissed off if that right. if that country gets gobbled up. Right. Uh, and you're not going to garrison the neutral. Right. Um, well, some of the France at the beginning, they can't even garrison. I mean, they 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 can't really garrison Poland. Yeah. Um, and it would be kind of ludicrous to do anyway. But you know, when Poland gets attacked, you know that France has an influence cube there. It's going to be a provocation. But uh, an ungarrisoned neutral is very is is not, you know, a. Um, it's 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 not a casus belli. Yeah, and, and so I think at first it's like yes, it, it gives space. It, it it sort of gives space for uh, Germany and Japan to do what they did historically, which is just sort of like try to keep a low-ish profile mm -hmm. and just keep gobbling up territory mm -hmm. and trying to sort of keep below the keep below the threshold of action mm -hmm. uh, for the Western democracies. But after a certain point, like if that gets pushed far enough, uh, especially because of the way these powers struggle to take political actions and mm -hmm. therefore have trouble getting political tokens back on the map to mm -hmm. extend their sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is like in those later turns, like for instance, and we, we had ambiguity about this. We still don't know what 
breaches the Washington Naval Treaty? Like, when does that go away? Well, it goes uh, away when when uh, one of them when they become a when when the U.S. or Japan becomes a belligerent, right? I mean yeah. that that's what that's that's what that's what happens. What, right. what what we were sort of struggling with, but I, I think what Rob's referring to is is that you couldn't deploy to the what to the Pacific. You, you couldn't deploy to the Philippines. To, could does that mean you could deploy through the Pacific? So the question was whether the U.S. could deploy an army into uh, into Burma, which I th- we decided that you could yeah, because if it had said that you can't cross those Washington Naval Treaty lines, I think the 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 designers have written. While the rule book isn't organized in the way that I is optimal for me, I think the rules are all in there. There's no real rules holes to be, and I and I and I feel like you just read the rules for what they are. So, just because there's a Washington Naval Treaty line on the map doesn't mean if it said that you can't use deployment through those lines, it would have said that. I mean, if if that if that's what they meant. So yes, you can deploy to to you know U.S. uh, to Burma while the Washington Naval Treaty is in effect, and it's clear clear it's, it's abrogated by by belligerency. Um, but the Jap- Japanese never uh, got to belligerency, and the U.S. was, you know, still using diplomatic actions to mobilize. So, yeah. um, I don't know. That I think I, I feel like. We but s- I, I think my point. My point was that like it just started there. Like we reached some states in the game where it was like things have gone so far down this track now mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Germany, like Germany in particular, taking right. territories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not getting diplomatic blowback from right. it. Right. That. Germany is able to bank a tremendous amount of resources and victory points, right, right. Uh, and there's like if things do if things go poorly for the Western mm-hmm. Allies in particular mm-hmm. in keeping those uh, spheres of interest right. uh, connected to where right. Germany is acting, right. um, England stays asleep. Basically, right. the Western powers like have a like they just they just can't react to what they're saying. It's difficult. This. It's difficult. Yeah. Now they can, but the the problem is that because of the way the die rules go, right. You have limited actions, so your your variance of die rolls is going to be high. And if you miss, you know, if you're only getting a couple flags and you miss your commitment die rolls a couple times, I mean, over three turns, you're not able to get out of civilian uh, out of the civilian posture. I mean, you're way behind. You don't have a force pool, uh, things like that. So I think that there are there are mechanical. Uh, th- things can things can go sort of one way or the other. For, for because of the way the mechanics work. Now, I, I, I feel like we've spent a lot of time about the, the things that we sort of had problems with, but the game is clearly, to me, I think the thesis is brilliant. I think a lot of the mechanics are brilliant. I think the, the political system and the way that they express this is brilliant. I'm not sure that it integrates into a completely satisfying whole depiction of World War II or a second world war of the of a possible second world war in uh europe and the pacific but you know that's sort of my taste and my take on it yeah um talking about it i've warmed up to the game quite a bit like yesterday i think probably for the first half of that first, of that game we played mm-hmm. i had this like sinking feeling of like oh shit we just burned a board game day yeah. on on kind of a dud uh-huh. um and Talking about it now and sort of thinking about what I would do in a second game, mm-hmm. I'm a lot more, I'm a lot warmer toward Cataclysm. Mm-hmm. And yet I find myself in this position of, there's a lot in that game that does well and is, yes. and is innovative and I cool. I agree. Oh, very innovative, yes. And yet when I step away from it, I think there's a, that that stuff is just undercut enough by 
a certain clunkiness in the way you end up applying the rules. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like there's there's so much like just double checking of like. Well, yeah, I think if you get like if you're going to internalize that, fluent with the rules and conversant with the rules, then you'll be better. It's just I uh, roll for this, roll for that, pull this thing, yeah. roll for that, pull this thing, roll for that. Um, it's you really. I think I think the game will do best. Well, all games do best when everybody is very fluent with the rules, and you just do things. They don't think too much. I mean, you think enough, but you, you, things are snappy, right? Yeah. Because ultimately, each action shouldn't take that much time. Pull a flag, diplomatic action, do something, roll the dice, next chip pull, somebody do something, oh, deploy this army. No, deploying an army shouldn't take that long. Boom, right there. Do this roll, do that, next person. So a snappy game, I think, is it, this thing would benefit from a lot of... And it's gonna, it's going to, I'm sure, benefit from repeat plays. Now, this we live in an era where people play a game once and they think, you know... Uh, okay, I've got to I've got to play the next new game. Well, but that's not that. But even that isn't just that. Like we live in a distracted culture. Mm-hmm. It is that. Okay, how did you end up playing Cataclysm with your friends, Bruce? Mm-hmm. Well, one of your friends flew in from across the fucking country, right. and another friend whose family was out of town for the weekend right. had an entire day to burn. Right. And so the question is like the like. When are we going to do that again? When are we going to do that again? Yeah. Like, setting aside Vassal, where it's right. a little more feasible, right. but right. again, you still run into scheduling yeah. issues. Yeah, plus I, plus I really, I feel like this is something that needs to be played face-to-face. Right, and so, like, this is a game that even if, even if I just adored Cataclysm, right. I was like, Cataclysm is the shit board game of the year, people. Mm-hmm. I think I am lucky if I play that another time in 2018. Like, I think I'm lucky if, right. if right. I get another right. game in. Yeah, I'm not jonesing to play it again. No, I'm um, sorry. The way not. I was, the way I was when, for example, I played Pericles. We got four people together for Pericles. Oh, how Pericles? Is Pericles? Oh, per- Pericles is freaking amazing. Be- better or worse than Churchill? Oh gosh, they're so di- they're so. Oh different. really? It's very different. Oh, very different. Oh, we may be pulling out Pericles and taking Rob, showing Rob uh, Pericles. So yeah, I, I don't. I mean, that thing we got we. I arranged, you know, I went out of my way to find, well, we had, Evan had more time at the time, plus we had, Jeremy had uh, significant uh, time uh, in the evenings, and we had another friend who was committed to doing this, so we played two long afternoon evening games, uh, and we all, like, made an effort to play Pericles. Now, in order to get this to happen, I'm going to have to find Evan with another day free, and then we're going to have to teach some, so that's the thing, right? We're not going to get the three of us together again. For, for this game until next year, probably. At which point, we are not going to play this game. Like, we're not going to play we're this gonna game, play right. Game. We're going to play something else. And if if I decide that I'm going to get Evan to play this game again, we're going to have to get a third person who doesn't know the rules. Maybe they will. Maybe somebody who, maybe there's somebody out there who wants to play uh, Cataclysm and really knows it, but then we're going to have to teach that person, right? And you saw how slow the game was when I was teaching you the, yeah. the, the first turn. We were really, by the third or fourth turn, we were really going, but... That's that first couple hours is sort of a little slow and it can be a little painful. So, yeah, so I don't know that I'm going to play this game again in this format. And I I would like to see other things that happen with it. It's it's a it's a big it's a big lift. Um, and I'm not sure when I'm going to lift it again. Yeah. And like and that's not I don't, it's not that I. And that's not a criticism of the game. Right. Like, a game can be... And it's not even that... 
it's not even that com- it's not even that complex. No. But like it's it's a little weird. Like I think for me a really revealing thing about this game, mm-hmm. the thing that is helpful to know about what you're getting into with Cataclysm, right. is that the player aid card is not a card, it is actually four pages. Uh, and it is four pages of different verbs and nouns yeah. that all have specific rules attached to them, the things right. you can do. Right. And there is an underlying logic that right. will help you like right. parse how all right. of this fits together. Right. But again, every single thing you can think of to do in that game. Yeah proceeds according to a slightly different rule and a slightly different logic, right. um, which is going to slow things down until you become very conversant with it un- sure. until a few turns in. Yeah. But, yeah, I just... Where, where I've ended up with this game is that I like a ton of the ideas yep, in it. Absolutely. But if we have three people, yeah, I would say, Bruce... Let's put a pin in Cataclysm yeah. and let's play Triumph and Tragedy. Uh-huh. The, like, that's that's kind of where I'd be. And I don't, I don't want to make it a compared thing. This is yeah, better. Right. It's just... It's just... Where, where I'm at with this game is just, um, I think for all its good ideas, for all its novelty, mm-hmm. um, and for all the way I can sort of see myself really trying to just get flags next time and play a lot yeah, more of an right, active, right, right, active right. game, I just think in the end that experience is going to begin to fizzle. Like, I'm mm-hmm. building towards something that I don't want to arrive. Like, mm-hmm. it will become less interesting. In, interesting. In that's interesting. I, that's, a very, that's a very interesting take. I, I, it, yeah, we have three players. What do we pull out? Triumph and Tragedy or Cataclysm? And, and I, I, you know, up until the time that you said that, I was thinking, well, it's not fair to compare those two games. But yes, it absolutely is. Why? Because you got three people standing in a room with a day free. What are they going to do? They've already decided they're not going to go see the Portland Timber soccer game. So they're going to play a war game. And they want to play a three-player war game. And so obviously they are going to, in a world where both of those games are available on the shelf, have to choose only one of them. That could be another, I mean, there could be a third or a yeah. fourth or fifth. I mean, there are other, there's a whole spect- spectrum. But if we decided we wanted to play World War II, three players, which one of those do you pick out? There's no Pacific Theater in, Twil- in, in uh, Triumph and Tragedy. I think I'd probably pull Triumph and Tragedy. Yeah. Give me, give me a version of this where the military side of things is slightly less of a, uh, you know, dice resolution, mm-hmm. just, a, just mm-hmm. a, a shot in the dark. Yeah. Give me a version of this where it feels like I just have a little more agency over, right. like, how a di- given combat is going to be. Give me a version of this where it feels like my strategic plan for right. a war can impact things and mm-hmm. not just like sorry I, I mean to be wrapping this up yeah, yeah. but <laughs> so but much to say there's so much to say it occurs to me like the way the military side is supposed to work out is that what is actually determining the overall course of the war is the interaction between the three sides basically right. like yes. the war is actually yes. going to be won by who ends up in a position where they get sandwiched right, right? like right. who's going to get squeezed right. most effectively right that's what's going to determine who wins this. Right. You as the control leader of your faction can't do shit to affect that. Like you like all your military actions right. are just cogs in the machine of the game sort of playing itself. Like the resolution is the strategic structure right. of who's going to war, who's right. who's positioned where. Uh-huh. But in terms of like you taking the action to like attack somebody, mm-hmm. by design, that is almost a meaningless gesture. You know what I mean? It you is mean, be, mean because of the mechanics or because of the geography or what? Because of the mechanics. Okay. Like, that no matter what happens, barring one of those, like, military catastrophes right. where everyone gets wiped out, right. barring something really fluky, all you are doing is you are creating 
um, you're creating the small con- outcomes that will create to the great outcome. You're, you're, creating, the- you're creating the conflict point, but you're not optimizing the conflict yes. point. Yes. Okay. So give me a version of the cataclysm that does that a little more, mm-hmm. and I'm probably a lot more interested. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I'm I'm really, you know, I'm I'm really glad we got the chance to play it. I I, I was thinking about it. I'm glad I, I realize I need to trust my instincts on Bruce. Sometimes you just don't sometimes, you know, you just don't get it. Uh you have to really think it. That's that's and that's this is why I'm I some you know, often very uh, I'm just kind of dismissive of people who who don't buy a game, they read the rules and then they rate it. It's like I can't I'm not even sure I could rate this game after What's now four plays? I mean, one one single play. Oh, sorry, single player. One two player of the European theater and two two players of the Pacific theater plus a three player of the whole game. And I'm still not sure I I quite know where I am with the game. So that's what I think. There, th- games need to be thought about more and uh, dismissed less. So that's wh- that's where I am with this one. All right. So that's the version on Cataclysm TBD. Uh, all right, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Bruce, this is Rob Zachney. Saying goodnight. Sorry, we have a uh, cat sort of traipsing across yeah. maps of uh, Europe and the Pacific <laughs> Theater uh, right now. Michael, you're going to edit uh, this part out. He may or may not. Uh, Ash the cat has currently uh, breached the Washington Naval Treaty Line uh, and has uh, conquered with her rear left paw uh, Manchuko uh, and has established a puppet regime there and now appears to be sent marking a door frame. <laughs>